You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hi, I'm Aaron White, Director of Communications at the Progressive Policy Institute, and this is Radically Pragmatic, a podcast by PPI. We have a great interview to share with you today. Congressman Bill Foster, a scientist, businessman, and representative for the 11th Congressional District of Illinois, joins PPI's Chief Economic Strategist, Dr. Michael Mandel, to talk about the future of artificial intelligence. Before we get into today's interview, I wanted to let you know about a few upcoming events and must-read pieces by PPI's policy experts. Mark your calendars, Tuesday, September 14th at 10 a.m. Eastern, for a virtual event on how we can improve our electricity transmission siting opportunities to meet America's consumer, economic, and clean energy climate goals. We'll ask the tough questions, like what are the prospects of addressing this challenge in the infrastructure bill or another legislative vehicle in Congress, and what's the proper relationship between federal and state governments on electric transmission line planning? This webinar will be moderated by PPI's climate expert, Paul Bledsoe, and feature experts from IBEW and the American Council on Renewable Energy and more. It will also feature a special video message from John Hickenlooper of Colorado. You can learn more at progressivepolicy.org. Also for your radar, be sure to follow PPI on Twitter at PPI to find our newest analysis of the White House's Build Back Better bills. Our policy experts have written thoughtful and radically pragmatic pieces in The Hill, New York Daily News, Forbes, and Regulatory Review about how Congress can deliver on issues ranging from taxes to climate, all for the people. Follow us or check out progressivepolicy.org to stay up to date and informed on the issues. With that, let's get to our new exclusive interview with Congressman Bill Foster of Illinois and PPI's Chief Economic Strategist, Michael Mandel, on artificial intelligence. Hi, I'm Michael Mandel, Chief Economic Strategist for PPI. And in this episode of Radically Pragmatic, I talk with Representative Bill Foster of Illinois, the very articulate and thoughtful chairman of the Task Force on Artificial Intelligence. We talk about the implications of AI for small businesses, the application of AI to financial services and the future impact on jobs, the need for regulators to look more closely at the outcomes of AI applications such as home loan approval, and the importance of increasing our pool of AI talent and rewarding the right people. Thanks for tuning in. I think you'll find our conversation well worth your time. Today, we're going to have a conversation with Congressman Bill Foster, who represents the 11th Congressional District of Illinois. Congressman Foster is also a scientist and a businessman. He's the chairman of the Task Force on Artificial Intelligence, co-chair of the Inventions Caucus, co-chair of the Research and Design Caucus, and my favorite co-chair of the Blockchain Caucus. Welcome to be here. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. Um, uh, You missed, I guess, one of my credentials, which I sometimes introduce myself as being 100% of the strategic reserve of physicists in the United States Congress. And I guess in this context, I'm 50% of the reserve of AI programmers. Um, I've actually (laughs) found found a second one, uh, Representative Obernolte, who is the ranking member on the science committee uh, oversight committee that I am the chair of. He is the ranking member, and it turns out we've both um, done, uh, you know, small amounts of AI programming. 
I think this is really important actually, because when I think about the, the statistics for industrial capacity, we know sort of how much we consider widgets we can produce, but we don't actually know the, our capacity for things like programming and artificial intelligence that may be more important in the future. So keep that in mind. We may, we, we may send statisticians to sort of count you, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years from now. So I, I guess the, the first place that I'd like to start is, is, the, is the, the, the task force on artificial intelligence. And, and I noticed that, that you folks had a hearing relatively recently. What have you guys been up to? What are you focusing on? Well, part of it is the sort of straightforward application of artificial intelligence to financial services. Uh, you know, at the forefront of that is the future of work implications for this. And it's been observed by many that the, the first jobs th that are targeted by things like artificial intelligence are people who are paid high salaries to stare at a screen. And that's pretty much a definition of three quarters of the jobs in uh, financial services. And so they're at high risk. Uh, I was uh, visited oh, a couple of years ago, the, uh, the trading floor um, of a giant bank. And this is where people do electronic trading day in and day out. And it's you know, acres of, uh, acres of uh, very highly trained people staring at screens and, and running the trade, running the, the financial trades for that bank. And so I asked the person who's in charge of the trading desk, uh, you know, what fraction of those jobs will be there uh, in, in five years and 10 years? And the answer was, uh, you know, rather uh, disturbing uh, that their, their basic plan was to have half of the jobs gone in five years and 95% of the jobs gone in 10 years. And those, um, and they're well, actually thinking of speeding up that schedule. Uh, and the, the difficulty, of course, is that once you write a piece of software, uh, it costs a tremendous amount to make the first copy of it, and then almost nothing to deploy it to in additional areas or to additional uh, people. And it's that those economies of scale uh, that are not just artificial intelligence, but but digital uh, the, the digital economy generally uh, that really makes the answer very cloudy uh, for job prospects, even in um, even in the digital field. But, but historically, it's very strong. But we actually haven't seen that kind of job destruction yet. But I follow, I follow the, the job numbers for the digital industries very closely. And we've actually sort of, the digital uh, sector has actually been the biggest job creator for the economy, not the most destructive. Uh, no, that's correct. And what happens is often we aim the wrong direction. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, uh, when the web was the you know, big new thing, everyone was going to have to learn HTML. And so a whole generation of, of kids were taught how to program in HTML. And now, of course, we have billions of people who, um, who program in HTML without knowing it. They just maintain their Facebook page. And so I think uh, what's going to happen is that, um, is that we're going to have very advanced tools where there will be um, millions of people using AI, but they won't have uh, any idea what's underneath the hood. And that's okay. Uh, because, for example, um, you know, we all have this supercomputer in our, um, in our pocket, and we, very few of us could actually design the integrated circuits that underlay that, and that's okay. Um, it used to be, you know, back in a, in a rural agrarian economy, that if you were going to be a subsistence farmer, you had to be able to operate everything on that farm and know the, the technology, and it's just very different. Um, you know, I, you know I, I used to 
do some amount of car and small engine repair when I was a kid. And when I look under the hood of a modern car, I am at sea. Isn't that isn't that isn't that amazing that 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 the use that the engine used to just sit there pristinely by itself and you could see all the pieces and now now you can't anymore. That's right. Now all you can tell is identify the wiring harnesses connecting one black box to another, and it, uh, um, so these are this means that the, actually uh, the use of these technologies will become very widespread, uh, and the dangers of of using them without understanding the implement implications, I think, are what we're going to be struggling with. I think the, the use of AI by Facebook actually is a perfect example of that. Uh, in our task force, we spend a lot of time uh, worrying about uh, the implicit bias inside AI algorithms. And so if you, um, if you can imagine you know, a small business uh, that is, wants to use AI to identify more customers to advertise to. And so if they go to Facebook, they have a very simple, easy to use thing, which is um, give me a sample of your customers and I will identify and serve ads to more customers that look just like them. Okay, and which sounds great, you know, um, it, but then if you think about it and if you actually look at the real world implications, uh, some of them are frightening. If that small business happens to be a realtor, it'll say, well, I'm selling homes into this area, which is fine to specialize in one area. And then, then you tell Facebook, I want more customers that look just like people that bought homes in that area. Uh, pretty soon you, you're effectively digitally redlining and, per, and perpetuating the patterns of housing discrimination uh, simply because you're choosing to serve more advertisements to uh, the kind of people that already live in a certain neighborhood. And, um, and so all this can happen without a, a, a shred of racism, either on the part of Facebook or the um, you know, or the the realtor who um, who engages their services. So isn't that uh, building? Isn't that isn't that building in? Just kind of. I mean, I, I don't. When I think about those examples, okay, especially especially that one, and we're sort of going to talk about it, AI and small businesses. Okay, I mean, a lot of bias exists right now in the mm -hmm. economy. Okay, whether it's in, implicit or explicit. And AI has the advantage of sort of bringing the biases to the surface where we can see them, whereas before they were buried in people's activities. Yeah, well, simply the fact that you, that you have a computer running the show, uh, that then you can look statistically at the outcomes and say, wow, this is off the track or it's working pretty well. Um, and, and I think there will be a difference when you, you decide how we're going to regulate this and prevent the worst of the abuses. We will have to look at the consequences um, and, and frankly grade the, the level of oversight with the size um, and consequences of, of what is being controlled by AI. Uh, for example, there's probably nothing more important than decisions about where people live. Uh, and so that is one where I think there will be very, there ought to be, you know, very intense and thoughtful regulation of it. Um, if it's a small consequence thing, like if you're just saying, you know, I, I'm going to have a, a cookie bake sale, um, and here is the 50 people that went to my cookie bake sale last time, um, and I want to advertise to some more, you know, that's a sort of small consequence that thing, and in fact, that's likely to be very biased. Um, but but Most it, by that, definition. that's going to be okay. Yeah, that, so that's going to be very, that's probably going to be okay. There will, a lot of this regulation will will adjust itself with the scale of the consequences. 
So let's actually talk a little bit about this, about the small businesses. Okay, because as you, it, the tools are being built by big businesses and used by small businesses. And part of the problem we have in the economy at this point is that it's actually not diffusing fast enough. What do you think about that? Well, I think uh, it's diffusing faster than people realize. Uh, that there are, you know, already the amount of artificial intelligence, for example, in that's operating inside uh, the modern cell phone is incredible. And businesses large and small are gaining huge benefits from that. Uh, there was an announcement uh, just today that uh, Apple has rolled out uh, these so-called digital driver's licenses uh, that are being implemented by various states. And what they do is that they, they have your cell phone have a good hard look at your driver's licenses, trying to identify if it's a forgery. Uh, then they have a good hard look at your face and make sure that, yeah, you're a real human being and that it matches the picture on the driver's license. Um, and you know these so-called proof of life algorithms to make sure that um, that it's a real human being and not someone not someone holding a photo in front of the cell phone right. because they've stolen your cell phone and are now trying to you know steal your bank account. Um, so that when uh, and so that there will be very sophisticated artificial intelligence operating inside the cell phone to say yeah this is a real life person um, and if you do that right. All of that information can stay on the cell phone encrypted in a way that it doesn't become just more one entry into the giant databases that we all kind of know these big, um, big corporations have. And so that's another place where government is going to have to step in um, and, and try to uh, make sure that, that AI's voracious appetite for information uh, doesn't just shred privacy in this. So let, let, let me actually pose a slightly related question to you. As an economist, I look at the productivity statistics. And one of the, the, stat, the, the, the fascinating things that economists debate all the time is we've had very slow productivity growth, uh, especially for small businesses. And, and you, you, we go back to this, you know, we apparently see all this progress in artificial intelligence. We apparently don't see the productivity gains in places like healthcare, in places like financial services. In places like um, in places like the education system, and the and and also in and small businesses, and then the question is, do we are we facing a problem of sort of too much artificial? Well, yeah, I think, well, I thought, look at my. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, my answer to that is that that you guys get it severely wrong by um by under acknowledging technological deflation. You know, there there a simple example of that. You know, when I was a kid, my parents bought a microwave oven and a Mano radar range cost $250 at a time when the minimum wage was about two bucks. So a minimum wage worker had to work for 125 hours uh, to, buy a, to buy a microwave oven. And we bought one recently um, at one of the big box stores for $42 uh, at, a, at a time when you know, the de facto minimum wage, at least in the Illinois 11th district is up around $20. And so you have to work for a little more than two hours at a minimum wage job to get uh, microwave, and there there is no new technology here. I mean, this is a this is a metal box and a magnetron and a and a power supply so, uh, and a timer. And so maybe the timer has a little bit of, of a few computer chips in it, but that was never the cost. And so that what we've seen is a tremendous um, reduction in the cost of of these devices. You know, having to do with the technology for mass production. And I think that if you um, if you would have properly um, you know chained that 
uh, CPI all the way through. But for products like just straight microwaves, um, I think you're going to you're going to get a very different picture of this big question: Am I better off than my parents were? I think we get that severely wrong in this country. We're a heck of a lot better off. Um, and you know, that's, I mean, such yeah. a, that's such a central that's such a central that, that's such a central question because I look at people's dissatisfaction with their lives, mm -hmm. okay, and and the the people I mean that you and I both know that are very dissatisfied and they feel they feel they feel like they are doing worse than their parents were, and it's hard for me. I mean, this we're getting a little bit off track, but maybe not because it's sort of re related to kind of where AI is, okay. And how it should be dealt with for the for, for you know for the small businesses, um, you know I I ask them and they feel like they're worse off. They feel like you know they, the 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 twenty five year olds feel like they're worse off than their parents are. I mean, are we going to tell them that they're? I mean, this is a little bit off the track, but are we going to tell them that they're not that they're really better? Well, off? I mean, one one conversation I've had with um, you know grumpy twenty five year olds is I ask them <laughs> how many how many vacations they've had in the last five years, uh -huh. how many vacations their parents took when they were 25 years old, okay? And you know, it, that le leads to an interesting discussion. I and, know, you know part of that, 25 girls too. Yeah, so, so part of that has to do with, uh, with the fact that you know, airline travel inflation adjusted is a whole lot cheaper among other things because we now have planes that can fly themselves and we don't need three people in the cockpit, we need only two. And so, you know, this sort of, um, you know, it just nips away at the edges. Um, we have very advanced scheduling software. So the, the pilots that fly the airplanes and the mechanics are, are very efficiently scheduled. They don't sit around waiting, you know, many, many hours because someone, you know, working with a pen and paper uh, tried to work out the, the optimal airline schedule. And so, you know, there, this creeps in without our, under the hood, without our really being aware of the benefits of it. So from, from, your, from your perspective, sort of, a, a, you know, you don't see diffusion of, we had a paper that was written for, uh, we have a, a, a project called the Innovation Frontier Project, where we sort of try to do cutting edge, identify cutting edge work. Okay, and one of the papers that we had was talking about diffusion problems in the economy. Okay, that the large companies were building tools that perhaps were not diffusing as fast to the small companies as possible. But you don't see that as a, especially in the financial services, you don't see that as a problem. Oh, no, it is a problem. You know, there's a lot of affection on both sides of the aisle for, for example, small banks. And, you know, small banks are having a tough uh, go of it, uh, partly because of technology. Uh, that, you know, the, the, the overhead in maintaining a computer system is large and it's to a significant amount extent independent of the scale of your bank. Uh, you still need to have uh, you know, state-of-the-art cyber defense and you need to have a team that just protects your computers from cyber attack. And that's true, you know, just as true for a, a $1 billion or a $50 billion bank. Uh, and so that these economies of scale that apply to the digital economy generally are now being applied to banks, which of course reflect back on the on the real Main Street economy as well, when the um, when the small banks come under pressure, and and so this is the tendency for digital economy to move toward monopoly, uh, is just inherent in the in the economies of scale of producing digital. Um, 
digital tools. What, what do you think the implications of AI are for sort of lending? Um, well, there's going to be a lot of competition from uh, companies, fintech startups that have access to, uh, you know, have access to big data, all the information on you. Um, you know, the, the traditional argument that we've gotten from the small banks is that they have this big advantage because they know their customer. You know, they go to church with them, they know they, they see them around town and so on and so forth. But the advantage of a fintech that's operating off on the cloud somewhere is that they have access to, you know, everything you've ever purchased in your life and how rapidly you paid it off and all these other, these other clues that may not be visible to someone who just, you know, goes to church with, with someone. And so that for the, this will be a huge competitive advantage uh, for the, um, you know, for the big data firms uh, in loaning money uh, to those customers who are being, where the risk is being mispriced uh, by the traditional financial industry. This will be a good deal for a lot of those customers. They'll have access to loans that they would not otherwise have had, uh, but it will be just one more thing, you know, cherry picking of, of a lot of the good customers that will increase financial pressures on small financial firms. Yeah. So let's go back to the grumpy 25 year olds for a second, because I know a lot of them. Okay. Is there any, is there any problem convincing them to sort of go into AI programming or AI usage? Is there, is there a talent pool problem? Uh, there is a talent pool problem. Um, it, it is, the talent pool problem actually is biggest among uh, native born Americans. Uh, the, the thrill of seeing technology for the first generation remains very strong in, um, in people who are coming here as immigrants or in, even in the first generation. Um, you know, if you look at people who are interested in let's go design integrated circuits, all right? And so that make the next generation of cell phone chips or make the next generation of, of, um, of chip technology so that we can continue Moore's Law's march. Those people tend not to be um, uh, people who were born and raised in the United States. And I think we have a cultural problem there uh, that we have to look at straight on. Uh, that, and there's also a problem that somehow all of the rewards get given to the people um, who are, well, if it was soccer, you'd call them goal hangers, who hang around, hang around right near the goal, wait for someone else to pass the ball all the way in. And then they're the ones who you know, write the apps at the very end or become TikTok stars or this sort of stuff, have no idea of the underlying technology, have made no contribution to it, and yet are capturing a huge fraction of the financial rewards. And I think that's something we have to think very deeply about. Is that really the reward structure that we want in our country to not, not to give you know, a significant reward to the people that just slaved away in the laboratory making the next generation of computer chips and give it all to the, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's and and YouTube stars. How how would you deal? How would you deal with that? That's actually a really important question because I, when I look at the data, you sort of see you see that in, in a lot of areas of science at this point that the growth of the number of scientists has been very has been very slow. Okay, and it's very you see a lot of you know you see a lot of increase in computer software engineers, but you see uh, much less at the at the hard science end. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, um, it's a, it's a tough thing. Uh, one of the, one of the, you know, truths of the situation is you don't need an infinite number of people in these. We don't need an infinite number of computer chip designers. 
you know, 25 years ago, we said, oh, computers are taking over the world. We're going to need millions and millions of, of computer chip designers. And in fact, um, the, the number is relatively small. You know, you've got one big team of chip designers that's going to design each competing class of cell phones. Uh, you're going to have uh, chip designers that do um, what's behind screens, for example, uh, and, and things like that. There's a handful of, um, you know, things that control power electronics for cars and, and motors and stuff like this, but it's not an infinite list. Um, and once you have a good design, the cost of replicating that is so small that, um, you know, it's just, it's going to be a fact of life that people who understand uh, what goes on under the hood uh, will be a small fraction of the total workforce. The same as you see in automobiles today. Um, so that I think it's possible to panic that we don't have enough at the very leading edge. Um, the other thing is when I, when I look at the progress being made in artificial intelligence, a lot of the progress is being made by a relatively small number of people. It reminds me a lot actually of theoretical phys physics. You know, we have thousands and thousands of people that claim they're doing theoretical physics, but the true geniuses responsible for the breakthrough, you know, in every generation, there may be 20 of them. Uh, and so, so it's, a, it's an interesting situation where you have to make sure that everyone who might be that Albert Einstein of artificial intelligence um, is, is really, um, you know, has a clear channel towards, uh, a clear towards path. that. And, and that's why, that's why we have to uh, do a lot better than we have on inclusiveness. Um, inclusiveness, in inclusiveness and immigration as well, given your remarks about the first generation. Yeah. So, I mean, what would, when we think about smart regulation of AI, <clears throat> are, we, are we thinking about giving regulators more access to AI? Well, I think we need better tools to analyze when things go off the track. That what, if you're a small business and you, uh, let's say that you, you're a small business or you're, you're running your bake sale. And, and so you say, okay, here are my 50 customers. I want 50, I want 500 more customers that I want to serve an advertisement to. And then what you want is a simple and easy to understand thing is that, okay, all right, well, ready to do that for you. Here's how much we're going to charge you. Um, uh, if you do this, here's how many people we expect will, um, will respond to your advertisement. Um, but, and here is the, um, is the gender and demographic distribution of it. Um, this is really pretty far from what it is in your community, um, in, your, you know, in your area. Now, if this bothers you, uh, it's not a legal problem, but you should be aware of it. And if you want, I can lean a little bit against that and then give people you know, a simple, easy to use control to say, okay, I would like the people at my bake sale to be a little more diverse. So why don't you move the diversity knob uh, a little bit to the right and then it says, okay, under those circumstances, here's the diversity that you're gonna have at your bake sale, our estimate for the diversity. And it's not gonna be as effective, you know, and you're not gonna have quite as many people, or you're gonna to have to serve more ads to get the same number of responses, but you will have better diversity. And if there were simple, easy to use reports and controls that small businesses could use, um, and, and a mandate that at least they're made aware of that information when they use these advanced tools, then I think a lot of the problem would, would solve itself through the um, you know, beneficial nature of, um, you know, of human beings. They human would just prefer. Yeah, I think um, you know, I, I'm a lot more optimistic about human nature than I think <laughs> certainly a lot of the pundits around. 
I think it's a it's 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 an interesting question because the first thing that occurs to me, of course, is that some people will sort of choose to sort of move the, the diversity lever the other way, okay, towards less diversity rather than more, and that would be distressing. Oh, uh, in well, you have to understand that bad things happen when you say I am maximizing profits. Full stop. You know, there's an old joke in artificial intelligence about, you know, you have an infinitely intelligent, um, you know, computer system in, in control of everything. And you say, okay, all right, computer system, I want you to maximize paperclip production. And it thinks for a few milliseconds, says, okay, got it. And then it proceeds to kill every human being on earth because humans, um, you know, interfere with paperclip production. That's right. And, and if you think of what happened with, with um, AI and Facebook, uh, that they said, okay, the AI, the Facebook's AIs were given the instruction to maximize uh, Facebook's profit, which in their case is maximize engagement. And so their AIs thought about it for you know a few milliseconds and said, okay, well, the first thing we want to do is is destroy all rational political debate in our country, get everyone mad at each other, get lots of engagement and lots of Facebook profits. All right, and this I don't think they set out to do that, but they did not have an immediate report that, okay, if you do that, this is what the result is going to be. And so we need to invest more um, and mandate uh, that at least for high consequence activities, uh, that you have these reports available and that you have to acknowledge the reports before just letting your AI loose in the world. And that actually makes a big difference for small businesses who may not actually know what's going on under the hood. So they have to have a dashboard that it clearly tells them what the outcomes are going to be. Right, in, in interpretable terms. I mean, if it looks like, you know, one of these um, terms of use things where you scroll down 10 screens and say, I accept, that doesn't work. Uh, we have to have simple, easy to understand, um, you know, if then, if then reports and, and the ability to sort of adjust, adjust the outcomes that you're comfortable with. Um, so I'm very much an outcomes-based person uh, on this. So what I find really interesting about this is there's so many covert assumptions in what businesses are doing at this point that actually flushing these assumptions out through artificial intelligence will provoke very interesting debates that we're not having right now, whether or not it's in healthcare or education. In some cases, people don't want to don't want to know what's going on. Uh, that's right, and um, and you have to think very deeply about what it is you're really trying to optimize, which is a very healthy thing to think about. You know, when I look at, say, housing policy in our country, you know, what is it? We have all these elaborate subsidies we set up. And then uh, every time we set up one of these subsidies, uh, all of the, the savvy lenders turn their AIs loose to say, how are we going to game this to maximize profits subject to these subsidies? And so, you know, I view the, the government role is designing those subsidies to get the maximum socioeconomic integration per dollar of taxpayer funding, you know, which is, I think, a well-defined um, mathematical goal. Uh, but then you have to uh, define what you mean, what it is you're really trying to uh, maximize. Um, you know, when I've tried to think deeply about this, the best I've come up with, I want to maximize the probability that a rich person and a poor person will come face to face in their everyday lives and have send their kids to the same schools. And that our, that should be the high level goal of our housing policy. And when we program the AI, um, we, the AI should be optimizing for that outcome and then playing all the knobs that they have controls over to, to maximize that 
let's call it an objective function. So, so, so then, it, then, then what we need is we need the debates over what the objective functions are. Okay. Correct. And we need regulators who may have good AI themselves to be able to sort of predict what the AI is going to do. Yep. Well, at a minimum, the high consequence, high capacity organizations like the tech companies um, who can do this in-house should have to do this in-house and report to the public on it. Uh, and so this is something they have the capacity to do. It will be more difficult when you start to go from the giant banks to the smaller banks, uh, to the community banks, you start losing that capacity. So what you have to do is, is give them easy to understand tools that they can use. You can't expect them to write those tools in-house. You expect to see AI as, a, as being as, as sort of as a boost to sort of entry in some of these industries that it becomes, if you have the tools available at the, for the small companies, that you have small, small, more small company creation because we've been suffering from not enough of that. Um, yeah, I think it's certainly, well, again, the Facebook example, you know, you can do what amounts to a very sophisticated advertising campaign without understanding much about what's under the hood. Um, you know, you can say, okay, here are my current customer base. I want more people that look like my current customer base. You know, that's pretty easy to understand. There's all sorts of ways that it can go dangerously wrong, but it is, um, you know, it's a pretty darn good first approximation to a cost-effective advertising strategy, which is why, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's a billionaire. Uh, so what is there any topics here that we sort of haven't covered that you think is that are relevant well, I, to this point? I think the um the nexus between artificial intelligence and digital identity uh is is going to be growing stronger all the time um that's one of the things that our our task force has had multiple hearings on uh, because the, because of the tremendous appetite uh, uh for data um uh, from ai um, and the fact that AI will naturally accelerate the, uh, the monopoly, the natural, natural monopoly tendencies of digital businesses or large financial institutions, um, then it's really important uh, that we understand that and you know, lean against it. And we have to, um, we have to provide one of the biggest uh, things that will amplify the monopolistic tendencies of, of this whole business is that your AI works better if you have access to big, to large amounts of data. That means if the incumbents with access to large amounts of data will have a huge advantage over the startups. So we have to provide mechanisms for startups uh, to, uh, to access this data uh, somehow in a privacy preserving way. Uh, and we have to allow people whose data is being stored and analyzed uh, to access that. And at the heart of this, is controlling the data that's associated with your digital identity. Um, and the starting point for that is to have a person able to identify himself uh, you know, as a certain legally traceable human being and sort of raise his hand and say, okay, here's who I am. Here's the proof of who I am. And uh, anyone who's holding data on me um, has, a, has a duty to report to me or any certified citizen who makes that request the data that you're holding that's personally traceable to that one person. And I think that's the end point that we're gonna to want to go to. And then you will have, um, you have the option of, of um, altering or abolishing that data, uh, the so-called right to be forgotten. And um, that's not technically trivial. Um, it's almost uh, 
antithetical to blockchain, where which never forgets. Yeah. And um, and so it's one. I think the the Europeans haven't thought through exactly how they're going to implement the right to be forgotten and blockchain at the same time. So, so it's a, separate, it, a separate podcast, I guess. Right, right at this point, the privacy is not at the top of Congress's list of issues to deal with. I mean, it may be at yours, but I don't see a lot of appetite right now. Do you see that changing? Um, no, I think it it has to, um, and and I think it it is, uh, and for people, uh, you know, there's privacy in the sense of are there these big databases out there that know all about me, and there's a but for most people, the real life threat to privacy is to have someone impersonate them online, and uh, to log into their email account and post all their emails on WikiLeaks, just to pick a, a relevant example from the recent past, and so that to do that. Uh, one of the key tools is a secure digital ID. Uh, that this has to, um, that you have to provide citizens who want uh, with the ability to assert their existence as a single legally traceable person. And when you uh, look at, at um, things like digital driver's licenses, which I am personally very excited about, to, to just when we expand broadband nationwide and provide uh, broadband access to every American, that part of that, uh, when you get your your subsidized broadband contract and your um, and your subsidized device, that at the same time you get you get access to a secure digital identity, something like a, a digital driver's license that allows you to prove you are who you say you are online, because when you combine a person, a government-provided high-quality ID, and a cell phone that can recognize its user. Uh, authenticate itself as a single legally traceable device that can't be cloned, which modern cell phones can. Um, so you have a person, their device, and, and the government provided ID. You have a pretty solid way of eliminating identity fraud, which is uh, you know tens of billions of dollars of, of loss to our economy every year. The, the flip side, of course, is that artificial intelligence has been used to sort of, to try to fight identity fraud. The, you know, financial companies have been have had non non verified identity ways of doing this. Um, correct, and that is actually going to the big data firms is one of the ways when you establish that you are a single legally traceable person. Um, you know, in in many states, uh, they have chosen to take advantage of those big databases to make sure that we don't have one person establishing a, an identity, you know, getting driver's licenses in five different states under five different names, which is sort of the root of a lot of the identity fraud that happens. Um, and that the, the big databases that are out there and, and accessed with AI uh, can, um, can be very helpful in preventing that. On the other hand, when you, when you start thinking about things like central bank digital currencies, what you want to do is approximate cash. Uh, so that you have, uh, so that you have a way of me giving you ten dollars for something, where we where there is not entered into the giant databases, uh, and and trying to make that happen in a way that um, doesn't promote ransomware and um, and everything, all the bad things that can. All happen. the bad things. Do you think the do you think that the government needs more AI expertise in the agencies, in Congress, in the White House? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and you don't. You don't need to have people who are AI programmers, uh, but you need to have people who uh, specialize, who have thought about it deeply for a big part of their careers. 
and know the technical capabilities, um, even if they can't do it themselves. You know, I'm sure a lot of race car drivers cannot actually repair the race cars, and that's fine. Uh, but we need to have people who are experts in that field. And I'm very distressed with the, the fact that Congress is not, um, is not well aligned with the modern economy. You know, we have, you know, we have, for example, uh, tech, tech, you know, information technology just passed uh, financial services as a fraction of the economy. And within a few years, it's actually going to projected to pass healthcare as a fraction of the economy. Um, and yet, we do not have, um, you know, I think they crossed it like 17%, you know, depending on how you measure it. Uh, and so, um, but what we don't have in Congress, we, don't, we need a full standing committee on information technology, boom, and a set of members who specialize and don't think about anything but that, because it's 17% of the economy. It is as important as a, as a financial services or a banking committee. Um, and we don't have that, you know, and yet I think agriculture is now down to about like one and a half percent of GDP. And yet, from a congressional point of view, the Ag Committee has all the good office space. <laughs> that's how we can tell, right? The, who's got the good office space. And that's right. And it's, you know, it's really a snapshot of what the economy was, you know, 150 years ago. And it's time for Congress to clean up its act and, and actually just align, align uh, our economy, our Congress should align itself with the, the modern economy. For example, with a standing committee that does nothing but healthcare, that's more than enough uh, for a member to focus on uh, healthcare policy, a standing committee on tech, and just to just take the big blocks of our economy, um, like those like financial services and have a committee that just thinks deeply about that and nothing else. I think that instead of having last time I counted, I think um, information technology is being done by seven different committees claim yes. that they are doing part of AI, which means no one is. And that's why we don't have a coherent uh, response to privacy. We don't have a coherent response to uh, artificial intelligence and so on. So I think, I think no that's really, to be done here. I think that's an important point. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for, uh, for this conversation. This was terrific. Well, thank you. This was, this was nice. And, uh, and it's, it's always nice to, to take a breath and look at the big picture and where we are going in, in these, where you get dragged down in the weeds so often. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Jack Karsten. I'm the Managing Director of the Innovation Frontier Project at PPI. IFP explores the role of public policy in science, technology, and innovation. For issues like climate change, preventing future pandemics, and raising standards of living across the globe, we need continued scientific advancement and technological improvements. To achieve our future goals, we must evaluate how policy impacts the rate of progress. IFP commissions research from talented academics and regulatory experts around the world to highlight new ideas and ambitious policy proposals. My role involves reaching out to prospective authors, editing papers, and publishing them to our project website, innovationfrontier.org. I'm here on today's episode to talk about some of the work our team has done over the summer and what we have coming up. First, in a paper titled Unlocking Frontier Technology, James Besson of the Technology and Policy Research Initiative at Boston University School of Law discusses how policymakers should promote the diffusion of digital technologies without removing incentives for their development. Second, in a paper titled How Exposure to Pollution Quietly Shapes the American Workforce and Economy, Claudia Persico, a professor of public administration and policy at American University, 
writes about how pollution exposure is a significant obstacle to improving health, education, and economic growth in the United States. Third, science writer Daniel Oberhaus reconsiders space solar power as a renewable energy source for Earth, manufacturing in orbit, and deep space exploration in his paper, Space Solar Power, an Extraterrestrial Energy Resource to the United States. Finally, we have an upcoming paper from Tony Mills, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, on the need for greater federal funding for basic scientific research and how to reform the process of applying for funding, distributing it across disciplines and geography. If you're interested in keeping up with what we're doing, check out innovationfrontier.org to learn more. There, you'll find all our published research, interactive graphics, more information about our authors, and some amazing Art Deco-inspired illustrations. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.